This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 28, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Following a large social media purge of right-wing accounts that companies accused of dealing primarily in falsehoods and actively promoting violence, a new call is emerging from the left to revive and expand the Fairness Doctrine, that federal policy used to regulate the contents of radio and television broadcasts years ago. Paul Matsko is author of The Radio Right. He details the Fairness Doctrine and why those who want to bring it back should be wary. The hot takes have been fast and furious on the internet regarding specifically, and sort of, I feel like, out of nowhere, the fairness doctrine. First, it was the complaints about the various, I don't want to call them faux news networks because I don't think they even purport to be news networks, which are just sort of commentary networks, I suppose, from the right that have been presenting and sort of extending the ideas about the election overturning election fraud that uh, Donald Trump alleged. And then going beyond that, a lot of people have said, hey, We used to have this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, and it worked pretty well. And so to you, someone who's written a book about the Fairness Doctrine, and in particular how right-wing radio used it essentially as a a tool, what do you make of these takes that we got to bring this back? Yeah, it's it's an interesting – it's a myth that won't die. When people think of the Fairness Doctrine, people who think fondly of a period when the Fairness Doctrine ostensibly was applied, they they have this kind of hazy notion that once upon a time, broadcasting was this fair, balanced, equitable, uh, truth-telling space. And that was all because of the Fairness Doctrine. And what they don't realize is that the extent to which it is true wasn't because of the Fairness Doctrine, which actually ultimately cut against all of those things that they, they, they see as virtues. It made the space uh, full. It actually protected lies. It discouraged actual balance, uh, encouraged viewpoint discrimination, and so on. And it's also uh, a rosy view of the past. Uh, broadcasting was never the way people like to imagine it. Um, it was a, a, a very constrained space in which people whose views lied outside of the kind of core of the cultural mainstream didn't get a hearing. And that included, yes, right-wing people, but also included left-wing folks, uh, socialists, that included uh, uh, kind of I- immigrant communities, included comedians, that included you, you, anti-war activists. You go down the list and uh, – Broadcasting was a was kind of a closed space to anybody outside of the cultural mainstream. Um, so the extent to which they're true, well, I'm not sure we actually want broadcasting, let alone an internet or um, or other mass media forms, to look like it did in the 1950s. It wasn't as rosy as folks think. One of the claims that is uh, thrown out there is, "Hey, if the fairness doctrine was constitutional in the 1970s." Why isn't it constitutional today? Yeah. And yes, I, my, my rejoinder is, well, let me tell you about a young man named Marconi. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but why specifically, uh, what was the sort of unhappy compromise that produced it? Yeah, this take I saw uh, most recently on, on Twitter, uh, MSNBC contributor uh, Anand uh, Giraharadas uh, said essentially this, which was, hey, 
this law was once constitutional. Why can't we just bring it back, apply it to the internet, apply it to social media? Um, and uh, again, it's rooted in that that just kind of utter ignorance of the fairness doctrine in fact versus the fairness doctrine um, as some sort of hazy romantic idea. Uh, the fairness doctrine was only allowed in broadcasting because the court system carved out a special exception to normal First Amendment jurisprudence uh, for broadcasting. So they, you were allowed to do stuff. Uh, the government was allowed to restrict speech, restrict, restrict free speech rights functionally for broadcasters that they could never have touched for print or for you know vocal speech. And so we, we created these, these two very separate tracks of uh, government regulation of mass media forms. Print was heavily protected. So there, you know, the, the full First Amendment rights applied to print. Uh, the barrier you had to clear in order to shut down print was was very high. You could, in theory. I mean, there are instances, uh, there are a lot more attempted instances, like uh, the Pentagon Papers case and others, where the government tried to shut down the New York Times and other outlets for publishing exposés of the U.S. conduct in the Vietnam War. And the court said, no, it's they have a First Amendment right to publish that material. Well, so print had this very high bar, high protection for free speech rights, but broadcasting uh, was uh, was was not covered under those that that same regime. So in broadcasting, the uh, Federal Communications Commission was allowed um, to essentially censor content, to make decisions about which stations got a license and which didn't, based on whether or not the speech that they aired was considered to be in what was called the public interest. Um, the, the technical phrase is public interest, convenience, or necessity. And if that sounds really vague, it's because it was. And so that was up to the FCC that, you know, um, it, there was a couple of odd things about that, which is, what are you talking about the public interest? Who, who is this singular public, right? I mean, is it in the public interest uh, to allow socialists to have free speech? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who don't like socialists who would say, no, it's not. But what do the socialists think, right? Are they part of the public or not? And, and all, all of these, so there was a lot of ambiguity and thus a lot of opportunity for uh, interested actors, whether out of uh, those seeking partisan political advantage or corporations seeking, uh, you know, uh, regulatory moats around their their incumbency, their incumbent power. They took advantage of this this very ambiguous wording to uh, to to well basically restrict their competitors and opponents' free speech rights and reward speech that they favored. And we only tolerate that because it's broadcasting. And that's the one carve out in our whole regime of free speech rights in the United States. And so we should clarify when we talk about uh, broadcasting, mm -hmm. that is to say broadcast networks, networks that have a terrestrial range and through yes. affiliates are able to uh, blanket a country with a single uh, the, with a single um, broadcast uh, signal yeah. across the United States that's what we're talking about when we're talking about who is regulated by or who was regulated by the fairness doctrine cable does not function that way and satellite does not require you to have a this right, this ownership right, or I say a lease from the government of this little piece of spectrum. Yeah, 
And, and, and this is an important point to make, which is, you know, this started with terrestrial radio and then was applied to terrestrial television stations. Uh, but then when cable broadcasting was in, was uh, essentially allowed, it pre-exists the late 70s, but it was brought to a large audience. The, the FCC kind of gave it uh, a remit to, to expand um, in the late 70s. It was given an exemption from all these onerous FCC regulations that applied to, to terrestrial radio and television. And, uh, and, and that's where the proof is in the pudding. Contrast the amount of uh, ideological and other forms of diversity in cable versus you know terrestrial television and radio. Contrast the amount of innovation happening in cable in the 80s and 90s relative to you know terrestrial radio and television. It's a stark difference. And, and, and this is another thing to remember. When folks talk about bringing back the fairness doctrine, they usually have someone in mind that they want to silence. And and maybe that person or those people are bad actors. They're they might be spreading misinformation and lies. They probably are. <laughs> so you know, usually it's a, a tip. Traditionally, it's been a, it's been folks on the left in the Democratic Party who they want to shut down talk radio because it skews heavily conservative uh, for a variety of reasons, and they want to shut down people like Rush Limbaugh. They don't they don't appreciate their speech. Um, and, and again, not without cause, especially in the aftermath of the 2020 election and undermining the election results in the January 6th insurrection. I get it. But here's the deal. Uh, if you restrict their speech rights using the fairness doctrine, you're going to end up having blowback against the kinds of speech you like as well. Uh, cable, again, is a good example of this. If you had a, uh, a fairness doctrine regime that also applied to cable, not just the terrestrial television, you name your favorite like political comedy show, whether it's from left or right, most of them are on the left, of course, it wouldn't be able to exist under a fairness doctrine regime. So if it, it's a blunt instrument, you can't, you can't target this like a cruise missile, you know, surgically take out exactly what you want the, the speech you dislike. Uh, if you diminish free speech, free speech rights in mass media, you diminish them for everybody, both for people you like and people you don't like. What worries me about this push for an expanded fairness doctrine is that people on the right have their own notions about attempting to regulate open, freewheeling communication among Americans as well. And that is the Section 230 debate. People like Josh Hawley, who decry the, the what he calls the, the woke mob. I mean, <laughs> like a day after this attack on the Capitol, he called it a woke mob. And... Um, you know, losing his contract for a book uh, and that sort of thing. Um, what worries me is that somebody will uh, manage to galvanize both sides to support something that will make, at the end of the day, nobody happy and will have, I guess, a, a woke bureaucracy <laughs> that yeah. will be in charge of uh, deciding who gets to talk, who doesn't. Um, and I, I think that's bothersome. Yeah. And that's one of the shocking developments over the last several years. Um, like I said, traditionally there were, uh, uh, you know, ever, ever since 87, when the Reagan administration re kind of repealed the fairness doctrine rules, congressional Democrats have been the ones interested in bringing it back. And that was true for 30 years. Until Donald Trump, uh, and, and during his administration, we've seen an uptick in right-wing figures interested in uh, uh, some kind of Section 230 or Fairness Doctrine type reform. Um, a lot of times, the Section 230 debate 
really is a conversation about the fairness doctrine. It's a kind of, it's a kind of cousin, uh, some of the proposals for how to deal with section two thirty. Um, but it, and it ranges it's it's figures from across the right it includes your nationalist conservative types like Josh Hawley, who proposed a, a bill uh, two summers ago that would have given the FTC the right to essentially certify whether or not social media companies were being politically neutral, being non-discriminatory in their content moderation of political speech. Um it's, but it's also people like Max Boot. You've got neoconservatives jumping on board. Uh, Lindsey Graham uh, helped sponsor a bill that's sitting in front of the Senate right now. It's mostly Republican, is Republican backed, um, that would condition Section 230 liability protections uh, on uh, basically wouldn't be protected if you content moderated political speech. You would be if you moderated other forms of like obscenity and the like. But, uh, they wouldn't apply to political speech. So every time you know a, a platform uh, removed someone's uh, objectionable political speech, they could sue. They would no longer have a Section Two Hundred and Thirty waiver against liability for for you know user posted content. So there's a lot of kind of end backdoor approaches to to um, a fairness doctrine using Section Two Hundred and Thirty reform, and it's got bipartisan support. Um, and that's a that's a new. That's a new. That's a change. That's that's new. Just last few years, and really disconcerting. I think the odds of some kind of serious reform of Section Two Hundred and Thirty, whether or not it's called the Fairness Doctrine or not, is uh, more as likely as not uh, in the next four years. Paul Matsko is author of The Radio Right. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>